So we're in a new series, uh, week three here, Unexpected, The Journey of Faith. And what we're learning is in all of life, in our walk through life with God, this journey of faith, that there's all kinds of twists and turns. There's some highs and lows. There's some successes and failures. And they all provide us with this opportunity to trust God. They provide us with an opportunity to grow in our trust in God. And what's unexpected has everything to do with you never know what's around the corner. Or as we often say in the My Fair Home, you never know what a day holds. And what's unexpected is not just what's around the corner today, but how God deals with us in ways that we just keep going, that's right, he is not like us. He is so beautiful and his grace often so unexpected and all that we need in all of life. And so today, we're gonna come to this story in Genesis chapter 14 where we see faith coming right up against things that we deal with all the time. Maybe you're dealing with right now, fear, great danger. It's not the first time Abram faces danger, but uh, it's a second time. And there's a change in what happened the first time. So let's just kind of do a little review of Abram, all right? So Abram grew up in this place called Ur of the Chaldees. You'll see it here up on the map. On the map. (laughs) There we go. I knew there was a map because I saw it once before. All right, here we go. Ur, see that? So that's present-day Iraq. He's from Ur of the Chaldees, and we met him up here in Haran in chapter 12. And what we know from other portions of the scripture that God actually called him first when he was here in Ur. He was an idolater. He worshiped all these other deities. And God asked him to follow him to this country and this land that he would tell him when he got there that this is the land I was talking about. And God said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you into a great nation He doesn't have a kid right now when God's talking to him. And he makes it from Ur with his father, Terah, and his two brothers up to Haran. That's where we met him in chapter 12. And then after his dad, Terah, dies, God calls him again. He says, all right, it's still in play. I want you to leave the familiar, and I want you to trust me that I'm going to take you to a better place. I'm not going to tell you how to get there. I'm just going to start going. And when you get there, I'm going to tell you. And so in chapter 12, he goes from Haran up here with his nephew Lot and with his wife Sarai, who will be called Sarah in a short time here. And they get down. Remember, he was in Shechem. He built an altar there under the tree. And he was in Bethel. And he's doing life down there. When he gets to the promised land, he finds out, oh, it's not just his because it's inhabited. And he gets down there, and it's not too long, where the land is unsustainable. There's a famine. And so he goes down from the promised land here where he's doing life, and he goes down to Egypt where he has his first test of fear. And here's what we're going to learn. And this is really important because fear is part of life and the journey of faith. They're real. Fears are real. Some of us are dealing with really big fears right now. That in the face of fear, faith is a big game changer. And it gives us new courage to not just face 
that fear, but actually able to grow and honor God and point others to God in the midst of all that is scary. So he gets down, he gets down to Egypt and God had already promised that he's gonna make him in a great nation, but he's losing his nerve and confidence in the promise of God. Remember, faith is all about taking God at his word. It's obeying his clear commands and it's trusting his promises. So when, he, when God said go, the command, he obeyed it. Good job, flying color, straight A, Abraham. When it gets down to trusting his promise down in Egypt, whoa, he's, he's, the, he's off rails, right? He is not trusting in the promise. Actually, he's not acting in courage at all. He's acting like a coward. Remember what he does? He pawns off his wife as his sister, putting her in harm's way to save his own neck. That's what's going on down in Egypt. And the amazing thing is, God doesn't chide him and discipline him and teach him a lesson in a way that he would go through a lot of suffering. Actually, God is true to his word and he blesses him, which means, remember, it means he cares for us and he protects us and he brings about this place of prosperity and flourishing as God defines it. And that happens when we're expecting, oh man, he is gonna get it. No, actually, Pharaoh got it. He got all the diseases. And, and Abram walks out of Egypt with all this new riches. And so he had this long trek. Go back to the map. He's got this long trek. Here, oh, the other map, sorry. Uh, he's got this long trek right here from Egypt, right? And he's, this is a long way back to the promised land. Remember what we were talking about last week? That a lot of times when we're going through something hard and it like keeps going, we'll say something. I've heard it all the time as a pastor. I wish God would just tell me what's the lesson I'm supposed to learn because I really want to learn it so we can get through this dark period. Like what's the lesson I need to learn so I can get better? And you know what? What hit me last week is maybe the lesson has nothing to do with how we need to get better. Maybe the, the hard things is all about getting to know God better. And he had a long time to reflect on the goodness of God. I mean, just think about it. It would not be uncommon that as the head of this, of this large gathering that he'd be in the back with his servants before and all his livestock. And so just think day after day, this vantage of just traveling through the Sinai Desert up to the Promised Land. And there before him were all the people that he went down to Egypt. He was so f afraid of losing his life. He didn't lose, nobody got harmed. He's coming back with everybody that he brought down there. Nobody died through the famine. Nobody died from Pharaoh. And, and not only are they all coming back, but with far more. There's more sheep, the text tells us. There's more donkeys. There's more camels, right? There's more silver. There's more gold. He's had this opportunity to reflect on God's goodness and faithfulness to his promise, to himself, to his family, in the midst of his own failings. Ah, and that's, a, that's starting to do something. In Abram, it's, it's renewing his confidence in God. 
his, his trust in the promises of God. It's, it's strengthening his faith. So that when we meet him in chapter 13 and he's back in the land, well, now there's a problem with the land and it has to do with sustainability, not because there's a famine, but because he's growing so big and lots, flocks, and herds are so big and they have neighbors, by the way, that the land can't sustain them both. And so in his grace, trusting in God's promise that even if he gave the land away, God would give it back to him. He says, he says Lot, hey, we can't have fights over this land. Your servants and my servants, you know what? You choose. You go to the right, I'll go to the left. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. And that's where chapter 13 ended, right? Lot goes off to the fertile Jordan Valley that's looking lush and green. And he lives, the text says, on the outskirts of these wicked cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abram's hunkered down in this place called Hebron. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 14. So turning your Bibles to chapter 14, if you haven't already. Genesis chapter 14. Now here's, here's what we've got. It's going to break down verses 1 through 16 is all about faith and in the face of fear. And then 17 through 24 is all about faith in the face of successes. This is probably a construct that we haven't thought about. That successes, just as much as failure, reveals what we're trusting in. Gives us an opportunity to grow our trust in God. We're going to see how that works out. So, um, I'm going to pick it up in verse 8, only because verses 1 through 7 have so many hard words that I'm going to slaughter it. (laughs) So here's the deal of one through seven. Just look at it. I'm telling you, there's a lot of hard words in there. You can laugh, but if I made you read it, you wouldn't be laughing right now. All right. So what we have here is a list of nine kings, and they're clustered in two groups. There's four kings that are in alliance with the the big king called, we'll call him King K. You see him there. He's the king of Elam, Keterlam, or whatever, however you say that. It's a mouthful. King K. He and his three other kings have subdued this region of the five kings and actually other kings. When you think of these kings here in this text, we're going to run into a tenth king. These are more like mayors of cities. These cities are 5,000 to 10,000, maybe 15,000. So don't think of kings and nations as much as mayors. They're they're kings over these cities, all right? So what we have here is the four kings have subdued these five kings and other kings in the region, and they have been controlling them for 12 years, which means these other people have to pay taxes, if you will, have to give food stores from their flocks and herds and and their fields. And the five kings that are the oppressed kings say, you know what, we've had it. We don't want to pay any more taxes to these people, right? And we don't want to give them any more of our crops and our herds. So we're not going to do it anymore. So the four kings hear about this rebellion, and they're coming to quash, squash and quell the rebellion. That's where we pick up the story in verse 8. All right, read along. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah. So these are the kings, right, where Lot has been living right next to those cities. So he's going to come into the picture. The king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Keterlaomer, king of Elam, 
Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, in other words, they were defeated, the rebellion was squashed, some of the men, the fleeing men, fell into them, what? Into the tar pits, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living, notice what it says, in Sodom. Chapter 13, on the outskirts of Sodom. Now he's in the city. We just note that. Verse 13, a man had escaped, came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great tree of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as, far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. So in the face of fear, this is what faith looks like. It gives courage. It emboldens the people of God. This is what we're seeing here. So the test for Abram was, are you going to operate out of fear or are you going to operate out of faith? Now think about it. Abram could have pulled a lot of cards to get him out of this fight. He could have number one said, well, there's four kings and there's just me. And this isn't, this isn't, we're, we're outmanned. He could have said, hey, I'm a shepherd. Come on. I don't know anything about war. When it says he had trained men, it basically, the word there literally means they were fit, they were able to fight. It's not like they were trained militia. These, these aren't tough Israeli fighters that we could think of today. These were men that were fit. They, they were a fighting age, and they had a few knives, and they had a few swords. They'd never been through battle. He wasn't battle-tested. He could easily say, look, I'm a man of peace. I don't know anything about war. He also could have said, hey, what in the world was my nephew doing in that city anyways? That was a bad place with bad people. We're going to see later in the text that he wants nothing to do with Sodom. And he could have said, hey, let my nephew clean up his own mess. You know, he's made his bed. Let him lie in it. This is somebody else's problem. But he didn't. There's no hesitation in the text, right? Verse 14 says, having heard the report, he brings his trained men together, the 318. He summons his allies, and off he goes in hot pursuit. All right, so let's go back and look at that map, the second one. So here's where he's at. He's in Hebron, right? This is where he's at. The, the servant who escapes comes and tells him the story. And so he gathers his men together with his allied and their forces, so to speak. And they head up 120 miles to Dan. That took some time. That wasn't like they just cruised up there, you know, in their Humvees. No, they were riding whatever they were riding and walking and running. It took days to get up there, right? And he's wise, so... He knows he's out, man, so we're going to do a surprise attack. He divides, right, shrewdly divides his forces into when he attacks at night, and he routes them, the text says. He just completely 
is all over these guys so that they flee to this place called Hobah, north of Damascus. So in total, 120 miles to Dan, another 60 miles to Hobah, we got 180 miles. What does that look like? That means Madison to Gary, Indiana. That's a long way. And then all the way back. And as he goes, he's victorious and he brings freedom. So it's kind of like it's starting to unfold. Remember what God said? I'm going to bless those who bless you and I'm going to curse those who curse you. I'm going to make you in a great nation and the blessing I give to you will go to all the families of the world. Now all of a sudden, the blessing to Abraham is starting to be realized, right, as he brings back these people from captivity back to their families, back to their cities, back to each other, no longer slaves, but free. The blessing working out. It's beautiful. And what we notice is all the kings, all nine kings so far in the text have one thing in common. They've all been defeated. They've all known defeat. First, the five were defeated by the four, and then the four by Abram and his allies. And we note the change. The one who was willing to have his wife's neck on the line to save his own now has his neck on the line to save his nephew, Lot. There's a big change. He's not acting out of fear. He's acting out of great faith. And what a contrast to Lot who's defeated in this story, who's taken away as a slave, and he seems to be caught in this pattern of he's making some bad decisions here. He continues to move away from God and his people. Remember we said, if you weren't here last week, that in Genesis there's this unique description of people moving away from God are always going in the direction of the east. And we, we see him go to the east, settling outside of the cities. Now he's in the city, and yet God in his grace rescues Lot. And we ought to be really encouraged if we go, that's probably the storyline of my life lately, or over a long period of time, that I have maybe eyes wide open, maybe I didn't even realize what I was doing. I kept moving away from God in my folly, and I didn't deserve to be rescued, but God's mercy and grace, remember, is never, never calibrated to our performance, to our, the strength of our faith. God in his mercy rescues Lot. That's a great part of the story that we don't want to miss. If we find ourselves wandering from God off in a far off place, God in his mercy continues to pursue us. So let's just talk about fear. Because I caught up with a couple of friends who are going through a lot, a lot of fear right now. In a fallen world, fear happens. It's real. People who are frail, we deal with fears. How we deal with fears is really important. So in a room this size, those of you listening on the internet maybe right now, here, here's what I know. Fears are there. And at times they can be suffocating, paralyzing, all-consuming. And we need to know the difference of operating out of faith in these times and operating out of fear. So if you're there right now, just are, what are you operating out of, faith or fear? 
go back if you're not in that place right now and go, well, man, that was a really scary time in my life. How did you handle that? Out of a position of trust in God or fear? Let me give you some distinctions here. When we're acting in fear, God isn't central to our thinking. He's not part of the story. When we're acting in fear, the emotions are dominant. We'll always have emotions, but when we're acting out of fear, they rule the day. And what fear, I mean, the emotions are real, but they're not always true. Real, but not true. That's really important. And so what can happen is our emotions start to redefine and recast things. Our emotions can redefine who God is, his character. It can recast God, if you will. It can redefine the reality that we're in. And emotions just make up this whole new reality that is not true. What we think about God is not necessarily true. That's part of acting in fear. Here's another sign that we're acting in fear, being controlled by fear. And that is we're short-sighted. We take this dark, scary chapter of our life and we now allow the weakness of our hearts or the enemy to get us into thinking, this is my life forever. But as Christ followers, we, we actually know the end of the story. This is not the end of our story. But when we start operating like this is the end, this is how it's always going to be, uh, that's fear. That's not faith. And there's a last thing that happens when we're operating out of fear. Uh, we're fighting. We're fighting to somehow gain control rather than resting in the one who is in control, even though it seems chaotic. What, what do we mean when we say in control? We believe he's in control, even though everything in our current situation seems completely out of control. See, that, that's functioning in faith. And not only are we fighting instead of resting, we're running instead of trusting. So the Bible will say in Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. That's a position of faith. Be still literally in the Hebrew there means put your arms down. Stop fighting. Trust. So what does it look like to trust God in the face of fear? Let me suggest three things. The first is you give God the fear. This is kind of like a spiritual judo move. Like, I know nothing about martial arts and judo, but I know this much about judo. That judo is taking the energy of that person, whether it's the punch, the kick, and taking it and going with it. So here comes this fear. Well, you've got this fearful situation. Here comes the emotion. You take the emotions. You don't let them just move into your heart. You just take it right up to God. You give it to God. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, cast your care, cast your anxieties. That includes your fears. Cast it on God. Throw it to God because you know he cares for you. So that's what we do. The psalmist says in Psalm 34, 1, I sought the Lord and he delivered me from all my fears. There's a second thing we do. We remember who God has been to us. So remember, emotions can redefine God. So let's just go back to the record. Let's remember again who God is. Let's remember his faithfulness to us. Let's start with the cross. There's no better place to start than the cross of Jesus Christ, God's love for you and for me. Then we have our own stories. Abram's got his stories. You've got stories of God's faithfulness. We rehearse that. We go over that. 
we remember God's faithfulness. We remember his goodness. We remember his, his, uh, his goodness and his mercy to us. And there's a third thing. And that is we rest in his love for us. This is really important. The Bible says God's perfect love chases away fear. When we're being dominated by fear, controlled by fear, that is not of God. That is not from God. That's from the enemy. That's from the weakness of our own hearts. God's perfect love chases away fear. So we remember and rest in God's love for us. We know that from the cross. We know that from the gospel. He loves us because he loves us. Not because we're lovable. Not because we're doing the work. And we rest in that. And we rest in his loving promises. Promises like, I'll never leave you or forsake you. That if you come to me right now when you're worn out in the midst of this, I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to give you rest. His promises said, I'm going to meet all your needs in Christ Jesus. Everything that you need right now. His promises, hey, if you need wisdom right now to know how to honor me right now, to deal with this hard situation that is terrifying, I will give you wisdom generously. His promise is like, hey, I work all things together for good to those who love me and are called according to my purposes. We, we rest in his love. We remember his faithfulness. We give the fears to God in prayer. So in the face of your fears, faith gives courage. That's what you need right now, courage to face it. It has everything to do with eyes on God, who he is, what he can do through this hard thing. There's a surprising test, though. It's the title of the message, the test of success. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but success, I don't care if it's academic I don't care if it's financial. I don't care if it's in the workplace. I don't care if it's social, relational, however you define success. That success becomes an opportunity for us to, to uh, grow in our faith. It reveal, Actually, success reveals something about our faith. And so it's a test that you may not have thought about. And it's how this story ends. So look at verse 17. And we'll get to it. So, right, he's come back from the victory. He's heading back. And it says, After Abram returned from defeating Keterlamer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom, so this is the town, right, where Lot lived, came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, this is a new king. We haven't heard about him yet brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Now keep your head, keep your head in the text. I want, I want you to see what could have happened here? You could have actually missed verses 18, 19, and 20, and we would never have missed a beat here. So verse 17 ends with Sodom coming, uh, king of Sodom coming out to meet him in the valley of Shiva. And then 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. 
And so what we're going to do right now is try and figure out, so who is this king Melchizedek? What's he doing here? How does he fit in the storyline? Or sometimes a good question to ask is, what would we not have in this story if we didn't have these three verses, 18, 19, and 20, about Melchizedek? Well, first let's go back to this king of Sodom. We know his name from chapter 14, verse 2, is Barah, Barah the king of Sodom. We, we know this, that the king of Sodom comes and meets Abram as he's coming down from the victory, right? He doesn't, like Melchizedek, bring anything for his tired troops, right? All he's going to do is kind of offer up this kind of nice thing. Hey, you give me back my people, and I'll let you keep all the spoils of the war, so to speak. This would have been customary in ancient times for a mercenary army like Abram's, which it kind of was like that. So, you know, that's all we get from this guy. But Melchizedek, ah, he's really different, right? So he shows up. And he comes with all this food, it says, with bread and with wine, a king's banquet. He's the king of Salem, which very likely scholars believe is he's the king of the city of Jerusalem, means peace, city of peace. He's the king of peace. Melchizedek would mean uh, righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. And he brings this banquet, right? He brings provision, and then he brings a blessing, right? So he's the king. He's the priest of the Most High God. And he brings a blessing from God that just echoes what we've heard in chapter 12 of God's blessing, promised blessing on Abram, what we heard reiterated in chapter 13 again. He brings a blessing, and then he brings something that I think is, would be really missing from the story. Would be really missing from the story. He brings a reminder of how he's coming back victorious. And it happens in that last verse in verse 20, when he praises God most high, right, this creator of heaven and earth, the very same God that called Abram into relationship with himself, and he praises him for delivering, right, the enemies in Abram's hand. I think this is really key. That in the midst of his success, God in his grace reminded Abram why he's coming back why he's coming back with all of Lot's family, why he's coming back with all the possessions, why this shepherd was able to defeat these brutal kings because God gave him the victory. And so the test in success is, are you gonna make your name great, Abram, or are you gonna make my name great? This is the backdrop that we don't ever want to forget when we're doing the study in Abram's life and Sarai's life. Chapter 11 is the story of people who wanted to make their name great. That's why they're building the Tower of Babel up to heaven for their glory. God meets a pagan idolater from Ur of the Chaldees and he says to Abram, I'm going to make your name great. I'm the one who makes things great. And you're to live for my honor and glory. And the test in success is whose name and reputation are you going to make great? 
Whose honor are you going to live for? And the temptation is to allow the praise and allow the success and allow the victory to prop us up so that people would think that we're really something special. Do you get it? That's his test. Oh, man, again, flying colors. He's going to make God's name great. So he joins Melchizedek's praise and he praises God with this act of worship that doesn't look like his previous acts of worship where he builds an altar and calls on the name of the Lord. That's what he's been doing to this point. He didn't check him. He didn't Hebron. But here it says he gave a tenth of all the spoils of the war and he gave it to this priest as he's representing God, acknowledging God, this is from your good hand, and I'm giving it to your priest as I'm giving it to you, recognizing it all came from you, it all belongs to you as an act of worship. He wants God to get the honor. He is honoring God as he's saying this part, and this is what you want to remember, the tenth is another word for tithe. So if you've been around church for a while, you've heard the word tithe. What is tithe? It just means a tenth. All right, so that the part represents the whole. And he's saying, look, all of what I have here belongs to you and I'm giving it back to you. This tent represents that it's all yours, God. But there's another way that he worships God. And that is that he will not accept the offer of the king of Sodom. Look at verse 22. He will not accept that offer. And we got to remember that he left Egypt with all of Pharaoh's gifts. He accepted all the stuff in Egypt. He didn't say, now we don't know if he didn't accept it because he didn't have the level of faith that he has right now. He doesn't have the level of tenacity to always live for God's honor. All we know is he walked out of Egypt with stuff from Pharaoh, but he's not going to touch, as he says, a thread of the sandal of his feet. So here's what he says. Verse 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept what? What's the word? Nothing. I will accept nothing belonging to you. I love this. Not even a thread or a strap of a sandal, not a stitch of your stuff, he's saying, Barah, so that you will never be, here's why, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. And it's not because he's concerned that people would say, Abraham made himself rich. No, he's, he's holding on to the promise. I'm gonna make you in a great, I'm gonna make you in a great nation. I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna cause you to flourish so that, that this man will not steal an ounce of God's honor, glory, and reputation. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten in the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Anner, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them have their share. So this is beautiful. This is this beautiful story of in the face of success, he's humble. Faith helps us to see the real picture of what's going on. Faith brings God into the picture in the face of fears, brings God in the picture. In the face of successes, he understands. Do we understand that? Are, are, are we duped into thinking, well, man, I just work hard. I mean, do you think the only people 
who are hard workers are successful in this world? I think we know that's not true. When we're living in faith, we understand that all that we have is from God's good hand. All of it belongs to him. And so we give back to God in thanks. That's what we're doing when we give a tenth. We talk about giving back to God. He, he's, he's not going to take this, this bounty that is rightfully his as the conqueror here because he knows this king is going to strip away God's honor and somehow change the storyline, the narrative. He's not going to give him the opportunity to do that. And I'm just wondering, is there, what does that look like this week at work? What does it look like at school? What does it look like in our apartment, on the dorm floor, in our homes, with our kids, with our parents, in our marriages, with the people we do life with? What does it look like to live our lives such that our lives are always giving God the honor? It's always making much of God. What does that look like? And, and is there a possibility that there's things that are being offered to us that would rob God's honor? I don't even have a clue what that looks like. But God in his spirit might just be saying, that's exactly what I'm talking about in your life. You go, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't take that. God gets the honor. God gets the honor. This guy, Melchizedek, he never shows up again in the book of Genesis. He doesn't show up in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 1 Kings. It's not in the book of Kings. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. But he shows up in Psalm one time, chapter 110. David's speaking prophetically about this king who would bring victory who's also a priest who would bring eternal salvation, someone who is like Melchizedek, the order of Melchizedek. That priest, Melchizedek, we find out in Hebrews 5 and 7, he doesn't have a genealogy. We don't have any understanding of his parentage. We know nothing about his ancestry because it says he's an eternal king who has no beginning and no end. He is like the Son of God. All the priests in the Old Testament come from the tribe of Levi, not this guy. Priests and couldn't be kings, and kings who wanted to be like a priest, like King Saul, they got in a world of hurt and trouble. But there's this promised king who would function like a priest, standing between heaven and earth, bringing far more than a meal. I mean, can you imagine how hungry those guys were? I mean, how, how soon after that meal do you think their stomachs were growling going, man, I sure could eat again pretty quick. Jesus didn't come offering a meal. He came offering himself, that which eternally sustains us. In a beautiful way, Melchizedek is connecting Abram's present to God's past promises, and he's pointing ahead to the fulfillment of how it would be that Abram's family could bring blessing to all the families because Jesus would come from Abram's family. And so who are we living for? 
God's honor, our own. Whose reputation is more important this week? God's or our own? What is it that is terrifying us? What does it look like to trust God in the face of fear? And let's not miss a really easy application. He's moving against injustice. His courage isn't just because he's outnumbered. It's in the face of great injustice where these kings were going to turn these people literally into slaves. And God calls us to care for the vulnerable. And God calls us to loosen and break the chains of injustice. And where is it that we could with courage be part of God's saving, rescuing mission in this world. Oh, that we would be known. Oh, that we would be known as a people here that have great, courageous faith in God in the face of all that's broken in this world and all that is frightening in our lives. Oh, that we would be known as a people who constantly are wanting to point people to God and his greatness and make much of God and for those of you who are doing that in these dark days where it's really scary and for those of you who are doing it as God has blessed you beyond your wildest dreams may you spur us on and may we encourage you in the fight through whatever we're facing to live in faith for his honor and glory let's pray Father God, we bless you for your son who came as the king and brought victory through the cross, through suffering. We thank you for your son who came as the perfect high priest and offered that once for all sacrifice so that there is no more need. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came not bringing the sacrifice, but becoming the sacrifice. And you've given us victory, and your death is sufficient for all of our weakness, for all of our sin, for all of our cowardness, for all of our pride, and we bless you. We ask that you would strengthen us by your spirit to live as you lived every moment of your life for the Father's glory. We pray that you'd give us your courageous heart that had you go all the way to the cross, may we be willing to suffer as we carry out the Father's will here on this earth. And we pray, dear God, that your people here at Door Creek would be known as a people who love you much, who worship you deeply, and who are always living our lives to point people to our good and faithful God who deserves all praise and honor and glory. In his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen.